Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Are you tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? Well, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just watch me love myself That's all I want Got what I want That's all I want I'm not sorry I'm Claire Fallon And I'm Emma Gray And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about volcanic ensembles and how love's just a bitch. (laughs) And the prom, obviously. It's always about the prom. Above all, it's definitely about the prom. On this week's Rom-Com Rewatch, Spring Break Edition, we're diving back into the 80s with Pretty in Pink, our first John Hughes movie. I am so excited. And here to join us on this John Hughes journey is Sarah Edmondson, who you may know from her wonderful podcast, A Little Bit Culty, and her role in HBO's docuseries, The Vow. Sarah, I am so excited to have you here and to talk about this beautiful 80s classic. I'm so excited to be here. I have so much to say. I'm bursting. Oh my God. I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm so glad. I'm so glad you saved it all for the pod. First of all, we always like to ask our guests, what is your relationship with romantic movies in general? Well, um, first of all, I have to say, I'm just not going to say how much, but a tad older than you both. So, well, (laughs) I was born in 77. So in the 80s, um, a lot of these movies were coming out, but I was probably a little too young to see them. And then I had, um, you know, like, I, I think I saw my own probably like Princess Bride and then, Fer- oh, you know, Ferris. So yeah, it was so good. And like Ferris Bueller's. I know you did an episode on Dirty Dancing, which I'll circle back to later. Um, but really my foray into it was I, was I had an aunt, a really cool aunt who was only 12 years older than me. Like we were closer than age than her and, and my mom. And she lived in, we were in Vancouver and she lived went to UBC at the time. She was in university and she, I had She'd babysit me, and she introduced me to, like, The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles. And that was that's the earliest memory that I can think of as, like, my, my journey with these movies. And then it continued from there, I think, with movies like Harry Met Sally and, 
you know, I mean, all the John Hughes movies, but then I think the movies that you all had as your backdrop were kind of later for me. And then I have like a 12-year gap because I was in a cult and I didn't watch <laughs> like any movies. So <laughs> a lot I don't of think there were good movies coming out then anyway. Probably. I didn't miss out <laughs> yeah. too much. But like literally pop, there's a whole pop culture like um, section of my life where like I'm just missing stuff. So that's so wild. Yeah, it is really wild. But a lot I have learned, and thanks to my husband, Nippy, who's amazing and incredible, we've been through so much together together for 10 years, he, there's moments where I'm like having a moment, like I'm having what I think is a romantic moment. And he's like, this isn't a, like he, he doesn't say a rom-com, but like he said, it's not a Hallmark movie, Sarah. Like this is, you know, this is not a movie. I'm like, but I think it is. And I, in, in why, <laughs> especially watching Pretty in Pink, like I think so much of my template for what romance should be are from these movies. Um, and also with Nippy, like, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't not from like the wrong side of the tracks or whatever. I was definitely upper middle class, but I was more like Molly Ringwald in terms of being, I'm just diving right into it. If I hope you don't mind just to That's be, fine. just because it answers your question. I definitely was like, not cool. I was definitely the, you know, ugly duckling, um, late bloomer and totally had mad crushes on all the like preppy, you know, jockey guys, which Nippy totally is. And I didn't and I didn't quite like put that together until recently. I'm like, oh my God, you're like an 80s movie dream come true for me. So that's my relationship. It is truly incredible how you look back on your own like childhood pop culture crushes and tropes, and then you realize you've sort of been playing them out in a twisted way in your own adult yeah, love life. Absolutely. Hundred percent. Like I remember when Nippy, like Nippy, made the first move, and he was like, "I think we should hook up." And I was like, "What? Like you like me?" <laughs> oh my god! Me? Me? <laughs> That's so romantic. That's yeah. just like a rom com. Yeah, I think it's funny you mentioned that because how many teenage girls are truly raised on rom coms, and that is our template for romance. And a lot of teenage boys are not shown those movies. And so we're just working from different <laughs> pop yeah, cultural script. templates for how relationships <laughs> could go. It's amazing that heterosexual dating even exists. Absolutely. Yeah, it's truly a miracle. Uh, we're all struggling along. <laughs> <laughs> so you've touched on this already a little bit, but why Pretty in Pink on our shortlist? Why did that movie call to you? I actually don't remember what else was on the shortlist, but I remember um, when I looked, it, it's just... Something that stuck out as a iconic film of of growing up, and I, I have to say, I had forgotten almost every plot point. Like I I don't retain, except for things like Ferris Bueller's and Dirty Dancing and those ones, which I saw probably 10, 20 times. I didn't see this one that as many times, and I think in my head I kind of had Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, mm, smushed together a little bit. Like I couldn't remember <laughs> yeah. who, because also because Molly Ringwald's in all of them. Um, and yes, the plots are very different. Like in Breakfast Club, she she plays a rich girl, right? And this mm -hmm. one, she's the poor girl and totally different character and all that. But it's all of those movies are iconic in my mind. And this was just one that I thought I hadn't seen in a while. I'll watch it again. And I actually watched it with my uh, almost nine-year-old son, um, which is wild because there's so many things that are, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a, it's ancient now. Like there's no texting, they're phoning each other. I'm like, I had to explain things. I'm like, Troy, they don't have cell phones. He, she's got to be home for him to call. 
Like that's just oh my God. something that like I remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, no. Oh, I I, when I was yeah. little, we we had like message machines that yeah. you had to record the message. Okay. Still, like yeah, yeah. We're not we're not that. Okay, I didn't have <laughs> a cell phone until I was like seventeen, maybe. So there was definitely yeah. yeah. I got my first cell phone, which was the clunky Nokia in in high school. So what yeah. year would that have been? Two two thousand five, maybe. My for me, my first cell phone I got in like two thousand one. Okay, and or two thousand. I was in university, yeah. so it would been like ninety eight. It was like definitely one of the first yeah. cell phones. Yeah. that existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my my family was not quick to give us technology That's either. Smart. So we were not the first to have cell phones <laughs> That's in my smart. cohort. Yeah. But, um, but watching it with him, I was, I, there's a lot of things I had to like explain to him. Um, and things. And That's so, kind of a wild ride. Yeah. I, love, I actually love that. So truthfully, I chose it because I thought it'd be fun to rewatch. And then as I was watching it, I was thinking, I'm so glad I chose it because I feel like in many ways, I mean, many ways it's dated. There's things that never would get past executives now in terms of like certain comments and and language. But in other ways, it's sort of ahead of its time, I think, in terms of the ultimate message, which I'm still not, to- I, I am not totally clear on and I want to run it by, <laughs> run it by you all. But yeah, that's just one, one thing I wanted to add to that question. Yeah, I yeah. think this one really holds up. And that's why I'm excited that this is the first John Hughes movie that we're diving into. There's sort of less of the problematic stuff that kind of clouds it. And I think we can really just get into it. So Pretty in Pink came out in 1986, the year before I was born. It was written by John Hughes and directed by Howard Deutsch in his feature-length directorial debut. And it was produced by Lauren Schuler Donner. And this is a quintessential Brat Pack movie starring two actors often identified as part of that group, Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy. And it is also, of course, part of the John Hughes 1980s teen movie canon following shortly after 16 Candles, which came out in 1984, The Breakfast Club was 1985, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off literally came out like six months after Pretty in Pink, which is, you just consider the clip at which John Hughes was making movies, and it is insane. Yeah, I looked at his Wikipedia page while I, we were researching this, and I was like, oh my God, during the 80s, he made basically every comedy from the <laughs> 80s that one. I've ever seen. <laughs> he also, because he also made like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Mm-hmm. He made Mr. Mom. All these movies that I never really thought of as John Hughes movies are also John Hughes movies. And then this incredible run of teen movies that we really think of as his major like cinematic footprint. And Pretty in Pink specifically was written, like, for Molly Ringwald. She was his muse, kind of, at the time. She was 17, like, wild, so young. Um, And the character of Andy is kind of based on her very specifically. And she was always... He always had her in mind for for this role. This was, what, his her third movie for him. Yes, and based this on was what the she, last one. She says about she did. working with him, it seems like it might have benefited from their longstanding relationship because she pushed back on some. She's had she li- likes to push back on some of his more mm. raunchy and misogynistic tendencies, and I think maybe that's one reason that Pretty in Pink is his most palatable of that yeah. triad of movies <laughs> to a modern audience, or at least to me. It's also wild to me that Pretty in Pink is one of those rare rom-coms that did really well when it came out because John Hughes was just 
everywhere. I mean, it hit number one at the box office, which is unusual for a romantic comedy. And it landed Molly Ringwald on the cover of both Seventeen Magazine and Time Magazine, which I feel like is so indicative of the place that she held in within like teen culture, but also just in the larger culture. Like she was kind of ubiquitous. Yeah. For me, it was like, uh, it was her and Winona Ryder growing up that were like qu- quintessentially, uh, yeah, the the stars of that era. And I don't know if you've been following God. the um, Riverdale show. I have not recently, but I have seen the early yeah, seasons of Yeah, because she does it like, and they have a lot of cameos of, of stars from the 80s. In, oh, and yeah. 90s. Yeah, like yeah. all the parents, yeah, all right? The parents, are, yeah. Yeah. Are, are stars. And, and that, I think, totally goes over the head of... The, you know, the fan base of Riverdale, but it's cool for us old people. It's a treat for the parents, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And so then you can watch with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy um, oh, are yeah. both in the show Single Drunk Female. And oh, I, I that. was really enjoying the two of them together again. It's great. <laughs> Love whenever they come back. Yeah. But John Hughes, as we said, was just kind of everywhere during this time. And it's it's kind of hard to overstate his cultural impact on the teen movie subgenre, and especially teen movies that centered the stories and like inner lives of young women. Molly Ringwald wrote a really great essay for The New Yorker in 2018, sort of grappling with John Hughes's complicated legacy. But one point that that she made is the fact that he was kind of the only one at the time who was really tackling this kind of material in a serious way. She wrote, It can be hard to remember how scarce art was for and about teenagers before John Hughes arrived. Young adult novels had not yet exploded as a genre. On screen, the big issues that affected teens teens, seemed to belong largely to the world of ABC after-school specials, Hmm. which premiered in 1972 and were still around as I came of age in the 80s. All the teens I knew would have rather died than watched one. The films had the whiff of sanctimony. The dialogue was obviously written by adults. The music was corny. No one in Hollywood was writing about the minutia of high school and certainly not from a female point of view. Wow. And then John Hughes did just that. That's so wild. It's crazy to think about. And one thing she lays out in that essay um, that I had not thought about is how the teen movies that did exist at the time or movies about teens tended to be sort of sexploitation, like raunchy movies about and geared toward teenage boys, like Porky's, like Revenge of the Nerds. Hmm. And so in that context, a John Hughes movie, which might look sort of problematic in certain gender uh, aspects now, it's incredibly progressive. <laughs> that yeah, it was. Yeah, it's not just about nerdy teenage boys getting to like sexually harass and assault popular girls. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like taking the emotional concerns of young women seriously and saying there's an audience for this. Um, These stories should be told. And then they also just did really well commercially. So I'm sure everyone was thrilled. Which is so great, especially because, I mean, she's so principled. She's so, like, what was the line that she says? when she decides to go to the prom because she says they're not I don't want to let them break me yeah. and you know and and that she confronts him and that she's honest and like even when she tries to lie at the end like she can't like that's that's what a what a great 
role model. Andy is such a strong yeah, character. Such a strong yeah. character. Should we should we get into the plot summary? Because I feel like we're all excited to talk about the details of this movie. We open with Andy, played of course by Molly Ringwald, getting dressed for the day. Stockings, flowery socks, lacy blouse, a little hat. And she wakes <laughs> up her father with a cup of coffee. She's like, please get up and try to get a job today. Do you think that might be a good idea? And after she's done taking care of her dad, she heads to school, where we meet her best friend, Ducky, played by John Cryer, a charming scamp with a swoop of hair under his, like, fedora, who turns basically everything into a comedy routine. Uh, He barely ever seems to be actually interacting with other characters. He's more just performing at or near them, including Andy. And (laughs) when we first meet him, he's... He's catching up with Andy, and then when she leaves to go to class, he approaches two young women and says, I may be able to work out a deal where either one of you or the both of you could be pregnant by the holidays. What do you say? <laughs> this is Ducky. Right. He is I had bold. so many feelings about Ducky that I didn't remember <laughs> from earlier viewings of this movie when I rewatched. It's like, I can't believe he was supposed to be the romantic hero originally. Was we he? also... Wait. Yeah, no, we'll, oh, we'll we, get into that. We will that. get into that. Oh, we will get into a... the weird history of, oh, of the way of that the plot was changed okay. of this movie. Yeah. I didn't okay. know until we started researching this, because um, I would never have guessed that they would have wanted Ducky to end up with Andy. Um, but as we as we go through her school day, we see that despite her warmth, beauty, and unique style, Andy is not popular. The hot blondes in her history class are snickering at her clothes, asking if she got them at the five and dime. After school, this rich slimeball Steph, played by James Spader, as like the quintessential 80s movie villain. He is literally what I think about in this specific role whenever I describe someone as giving me the vibes or aesthetics of an 80s movie villain. Oh, yeah. yeah. To me, like, Steph is just it. He's just the pinnacle. Yeah. And have you seen what he looks like now, by the way? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to be mean, but like... Less hair. Yes. <laughs> that was his best life. <laughs> he had the feathered hair and like always like a light colored suit on. And just this very they sort of loose vibe. All the preppies in this movie, all the men are just constantly wearing beige linen suits. What is that? Everyone's I don't remember in a blazer. That. Yeah, I don't remember. Was that everyone in not in a blazer in the eighties? That's my impression from this movie. Not in Vancouver, where I grew up, <laughs> for sure. Not maybe in Miami. I don't know. Like that's what I think of in the eighties. But this is supposed to be <laughs> Illinois, right? Like, does is that what they is that what they did? Chicago, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I you know we'll have to do a little more research on that. And he tries to convince Andy to hook up with him, and after she repeatedly says no. He calls her a bitch. So Andy's having a fun time. The girls hate her. The guys are trying to sexually harass her, and they also hate her. (laughs) So she heads to her safe space, her after-school job at a record store at the mall, where we meet her edgy boss, Iona, who is sort of her most, the most maternal figure in her life. Yes, played by Annie Potts, and she is just an icon in this role. And while she's working the desk, Molly locks eyes with one of her classmates, Blaine, played by Andrew McCarthy, one of the rich, popular guys at school, and Steph's, like, best friend, which raises a lot of questions about Blaine's judgment. 
He, however, flirts with Andy. He has her recommend a record to him. And this sparks something in Andy where she's like, I think there's a vibe with this rich guy, Blaine. Maybe he's different from the others. At this point, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the rest of the plot summary of Pretty and Pink. Can you keep up? I like love it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life, and I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy. I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even connect where they're coming from with the actual origin. We all carry around these stressors, right? And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. (laughs) So important. I also just know myself. I, I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender, I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article, that lovely chair out on my deck, article, our big console, article, I'm my bed frame, article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. 
And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we are back. And Andy is really riding high from this interaction with Blaine. Yeah, She heads to the club where she and her friends always hang out, except for Ducky, of course, who is never allowed in. As he should not be. No one should let Ducky in anywhere. She asked her her friend, Jenna, played by Alexa Keenan, if she'd ever date a guy with money. And Jenna gives this a side eye. She's like, do you have a rich boyfriend or something? And Andy's like, no, nothing. Don't worry about it. But it's clear that Andy is thinking about dating a guy with money. Meanwhile, outside, the bouncer is telling Ducky to just give up on Andy instead of coming to hang out outside of this club for three hours every time Andy comes here. He's like, love's a bitch, Duck. Love's a bitch. And Duck's like, ain't that the truth? Finally, Andy comes out and heads home. The bouncer is like urging her to hang out somewhere that Ducky can get in. Then when she tells Ducky she's going to bed, he's like, yours or mine. This girl can't catch a break. Everyone is, like, constantly pressuring her to hook up with Ducky. Cut to the computer lab at school where Andy is working when someone sends her a chat through some sort of computer lab intranet technology that I... I didn't know that this predates was a my, thing. my day. Yeah, I didn't know that this was the thing that you could do on computers in the 80s shows how much I know I don't remember that it's like that's like early messenger yeah 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 I guess it must have been like wired in yeah it's clear that it's that it's within that network of computers it's not like internet um but it's just like words showing up on her dark screen and like the yellow the yellow green type that we that you would see on those computers and she thinks it's ducky But it turns out it's actually Blaine. And he reveals this by sending her a picture of him. And then they stand up and they see each other and she beams. She's so excited. It seems like he's actually pursuing this. Andrew McCarthy also just has like the perfect little non-threatening teen boy (laughs) half smile that I see in so many good teen rom-com romantic heroes. Like, it's like Jesse Bradford in Bring It On, Paul Rudd in Clueless. They all have it. It's a, it's a definite, specific something, niche, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, her, and her lip biting, by the way, like her, you know, the multiple <laughs> lip bites, her like, oh my yeah. God, she's looking at me. Uh. <laughs> Again, the templates right there. Yeah. Yes. Meanwhile, Ducky is taking his own approach to courtship. He is with Andy's father, Jack. 
confiding in him about his feelings for Andy and his desire to ultimately marry her and take care of her. And Jack is like, okay, does she know about this? And Ducky's like, I'm picking my moment, okay? Like, I'm not in a rush. And Andy's dad says, look, I can relate. I once felt the same way about a girl, and I married her, and one day she just split. And Ducky's like, oh, this is Andy's mom. And Jack is like, yes. (laughs) Try to keep up, (laughs) Ducky. And he says, I haven't seen her in three years, but I still love her. And he tells Ducky, look, you can love Andy. That doesn't mean she's going to love you back. She might, but she won't necessarily. And you have to be prepared for that. Ducky is not prepared for that, I'm just going to say. And neither was Andy's dad, which is why it's been three years since his wife left. And he has spent the whole time, I guess, like in bed or drinking beer on folding chairs outside his house instead of getting a job. Blaine returns to the record store and tells Andy he didn't like the album she recommended. She's like, oh, it's too hip for you? And he's like, yeah, it was too hip. And he asked her to recommend something a little less political. And she's like, how about Madonna? (laughs) So they're having this flirtation over the differences in their sort of views of the world and trying to connect despite that. And it seems like it's going well. But then Ducky starts repeatedly setting off the alarm in the back room, forcing Andy to go deal with him and ultimately, like, apologize for getting mad at him for, like, setting off the alarm at her place of employment. This is where I really started to lose it with Ducky. (laughs) She's like, I'm sorry for getting mad at you. I was like, this guy is annoying as hell. More people need to get mad at Ducky. While she's busy with that, Steph spots Blaine in the record store, convinces him to leave. And so when she comes back out, Blaine has already departed. Then she hopes to get a call from him that night. Instead, she gets a million messages from Ducky. But at school, soon after, Blaine ventures out to where kind of the alt kids hang out. Outside the school. Out back. Out back. They're not in the cafeteria. <laughs> They're sitting on the steps out back. <laughs> Sidebar, we had that at our school, too. And really? It was called, really? Yeah, it was called the Brass Doors. Yeah, oh. the Brass Doors at Lord Bing Secondary. And that's where all the theater <laughs> kids and the kids who smoked and, like, the anyone who wasn't a jockey, preppy, okay, popular I, I would have been out there, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, no, I love this. I wish yeah. that there had been separate territories at my school. Oh, we totally had that. You can just... I'll meet you. I'll meet you by the brass doors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. So he's terrified to be there. He's like, this is not my scene. Like, I'm not into this shit. But he's braving it for Andy. And he asks her out for Friday night. Unfortunately, Steph has seen him paying attention to Andy. And he lets Blaine know that he is not impressed and Blaine's like, what's it to you? And he's like, my best friend is conversing with a mutant. Um, I, I'm curious. Yeah, Steph is like, um, only I will be getting with Andy and it will be in secret. Yeah. How dare you? He's jealous. Me se- secretly yeah. sexually dominating Andy would is totally different from you, like, publicly asking her out, obviously. Meanwhile, Ducky is trying to work himself up to go after Andy. He... Is at her place for a study session. He's She goes to get some water. He's, like, rehearsing his declaration. She even overhears him singing a love song through the vents. But then he's like, no, I can't do it. He chickens out and leaves. And 
it seems like he is trying to get himself to a point where he can finally unburden himself of this massive love that he has, but he can never quite get himself there. So he takes another crack at it on Friday night. Perfect timing. He shows up at the record store where Blaine is going to pick Andy up and pulls off a very theatrical lip sync to Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness. I just have to say, I think this is like the peak performance yeah. of for John Cryer in this movie. <laughs> like this scene is incredible. He's like doing air humping and like jumping up the staircase. <laughs> and it's it's really it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's very, it feels very um John Hughes to me. I mean, it, to me watching this, I was like, this is reminiscent of Ferris Bueller, which of course yes. came out later. <laughs> yeah. And also there's that scene in where they're all getting high in the Breakfast Club and they're like dancing on the railings. Yeah, John Hughes loves an exaggerated dance lip sync performance moment. <laughs> it's like, Which this also, is what the teens are doing. I feel like that explains a lot for me and my and my life. Like, I loved lip syncing. I loved doing dances to, like, when, when I listened to your Dirty Dancing episode, I was like, that was all my birthday parties was, like, re, like redoing those dances with all my friends. Yeah. Not the dirty stuff necessarily. But like, just, <laughs> oh my god! No, yeah. I I used to watch Dirty yeah. Dancing with my friend, and we would like try to yeah recreate the dances. It was it's yeah. intoxicating. It totally There's something is. about watching. You're just like, oh, I could I could do that. I could yeah. be that cool and free and like. Yeah, the, I don't know. It's such a it is such an interesting way to explore the like. So much about being a teenager is about being really controlled mm -hmm. and hyper aware with your movements and the way that you're operating in the world. And I think there is such a particular freedom in these little breaks where these kids are just like flailing their limbs everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Inspiration. It is so important in the teen movie because it's not just, I mean, it's the John Hughes movies, it's Dirty Dancing, like you said, and it's also movies like 10 Things I Hate About You or like She's All That when they do the prom uh, like, extremely choreographed dance sequences. Oh, my God, yes. Like, teenagers really crave those those moments, and John Hughes, John Hughes got that. Mm -hmm. And after he wraps up his extremely overwrought performance, and he's ready to take Andy out for the night, he finds out that Andy is actually waiting to go on a date with another guy, and he completely flies off the handle. <laughs> He calls her stupid. He's like, if you had any respect for yourself, you wouldn't go out with this guy. He's going to use you and throw you away. And Andy's like, I think he's different. I like him. What, like, why shouldn't I go out with him if I like him? If I hate him because he's got money, that's the exact same thing as them hating us because we don't. And Ducky's like, whatever. If you get your heart splattered all to hell, I won't be there for you this time. Great friend right there. Yeah, the, the, there is a dynamic to their relationship that is still a little baffling to me where I'm like, can Andy, does Andy know, is she supposed to know that he's in love with her? Or is she just like willfully ignorant of yeah. it? She's like, I don't want to deal with the fact that my best friend is in love with me and possessive of me. So I'm just going to like, not. His reaction is completely deranged considering that he has never overtly declared himself to her. Like, she is just supposed to understand that she's not allowed to date anyone else. And 
Blaine then does pick Andy up. It seemed like he was running late. Maybe he was going to stand her up, but he does show up. And he's like, do you want to change into something else? And she's like, I already did. And so things are starting off well. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) And then he insists on taking her to his good friend Steph's house party with all of her bullies, even though she very firmly refuses and is like, I definitely don't want to do that. He's like, I would take This is a terrible first date idea. Like, at least go to dinner first, my (laughs) guy. Like, what are you doing? Just like throwing her into the lion's den. I know. That was awful. He can take her to dinner. He's like... We have to deal with it at some point if we want to do this. And I'm like, okay, deal with it at a point after you've taken her on a nice date. <laughs> take her out for for pasta. He's like, I wouldn't take you if I didn't believe my friends would accept you. Spoiler, they do not accept her. Everyone treats her like garbage at this party. He finally takes her upstairs for a quiet retreat. <laughs> Only Sorry, to stumble with, into with this- beer and pretzels, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> this, com- this that moment actually completely melted my heart too. I was like, I'm Andy in this moment where I'm like, you're being such a dick, and I'm mad at you. But then he grabs the beer with his elbow and the yeah. pretzels with his mouth. Yeah, it's so cute. And yeah. he's like, it I'm utterly is. foolish here. Like, yeah. give it's me a break. A, it's adorable. It's very adorable. He's like, I, my hands, they're you're safe. They're my back. You're safe. Yeah. You're safe. Yeah, he's very charming. <laughs> he's so charming. And Molly Ringwald, as we'll get into, she was one of us. She saw that. That's the reason he was cast. So he ends up stumbling with her into the same exact room where Steph has been hooking up with one of her primary bullies, Benny, which we discover when Benny, like, wafts into the room and is like, another giant step away from virginity I went. And Steph (laughs) is like, you are a slut, aren't you, Benny? He says some awful things to her. He does. Yeah, this guy sucks. Later, like, he says, I don't give a shit what you think. Did you hear that? Yeah. At the, yeah. At the prom? Yeah. Horrible to her. Yeah. Throughout. Well, but they have this weird dynamic that I think is supposed to both make Steph look bad and also Benny, where he treats her like garbage and, like, he's using her sexually. And she is almost looks worse through that because she is accepting his poor treatment because he's very popular and rich and she gets status. Like, she immediately tries to get Andy thrown out of the party because she's the one hooking up with the host. She's like, I don't want her. I don't want her here. She's going to ruin my night stuff. And after she goes hard after Andy and ultimately Blaine, who tries to defend Andy and Benny retaliates by calling him the F slur. Andy's like, all right, I've had enough. I'm leaving. Blaine, to his credit at this point, does feel bad. He's like, you can hit me if you want. Like, I'm sorry. Let's go to where your friends hang out. Yeah, she's like, I just want to get the fuck out of here. Which, fair. So they do. He apologizes for overestimating his friends. And so Andy's like, I'm going to take you to one of my haunts, the club, Cats, where she and her non-Richie friends hang out. And Ducky has finally gotten in for, I guess, the first time in his life because of Iona. Yeah, Iona tells the bouncer that he's her child. (laughs) Ducky is telling Iona about the fact that he, like, basically follows Andy on his bike every day. How does he even have Ducky time to stop stalker. her? They're always together as it is. And in his free moments where they're not hanging out, he's also stalking her. 
And then Blaine and Andy walk in, and Ducky goes on the offensive. He gives Andy the cold shoulder. He calls Blaine a scumwad. He's like, I devoted my life to this girl. (sighs) Eventually, Blaine and Andy leave the club, and Ducky grabs Iona and just kisses her without her consent in order to send a last fuck you to Andy. It does not work. (laughs) She does not seem to care. care. You can never. She's like, probably just like that's weird. You can't make someone who's not interested in you jealous by kissing someone else. They aren't interested in you. They don't care. It's so true. If if they're not into you at all, they're probably like, thank God, go pursue someone else. <laughs> go pursue my boss. Blaine then invites Andy to his house, but she's like, no, I just want to go home. But she actually doesn't want to go home because she doesn't want Blaine to take her home. She doesn't want him to see where she lives. She is in the quintessential wrong side of the tracks. Like, literally. They, yeah. She's like, you can drop me at the track. And he's <laughs> like, but why wouldn't I take you home? And finally, she just blurts it out. She's like, because I don't want you to see where I live. She starts to cry, gets in the car, and he ultimately does take her home. Because I guess he's not going to, like, leave her by the railroad tracks in the middle of the night. That doesn't seem safe. I thought it was tracks. I thought that was the record store name. Oh. Oh. Maybe it is. Is it what? Do you remember what the name was? I actually don't. Honestly, that would make more sense. I don't know why. I was just like, I guess it's the railroad tracks. Because they do show the railroad tracks in, like, stills. It is tracks. You know what? That is actually funny because it's. She does, like, she, they're a wrong side of the tracks yeah. love story. And also, tracks, the record store, is, like, their uh, meeting place. That's So, I feel like they're getting kind oh, of double that was duty out of that. I think so. Yeah. yeah. That would make sense. Uh, Good catch, Sarah. I fully was just like, <laughs> I guess the railroad tracks. <laughs> it makes more sense that she would ask him to, pick, to drop her off at the record store, though, because yeah. he picked her up there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, that's a good mystery solved. And also, if I was like, just drop me off by the side of the highway, you know, it just doesn't sound (laughs) like a good place to drop someone off. Uh, So he tells her that he had a great time because he was with her. He's like, if I was in a Turkish prison, I'd have a great time. He seems like he knows a lot about that kind of experience. (laughs) And then he invites her to the prom. And this is so romantic. She gives him a big kiss. And they just, like, really, really make out. And it's, like, a good on-screen kiss. Sometimes you want to look away, but these two, no, it's good. They have chemistry. I was going to ask you if you thought, if you felt it was, like, there was a couple moments where I was like, oh, they're so, they love each other. And then I was like, I'm wondering what it was like for them in real, you know, you find out afterwards, like, they don't actually, like, did you read anything about that in your research? Did they, did it, was it good, did she say? It's been reported that, like, she kind of had a crush on him. Okay. He was a little bit older than her, uh, so. How old were they when they did I, this? She was 17, and he was, like, maybe 22, uh, which is, like, a big, a big difference deal, for, then. for kids at that yeah. age. And I think she was, like, all starry-eyed for him. They had great chemistry, but he was, like, I'm a little older, yeah. so we're not going to be, like, best friends. Yeah. But th- I think that they had a... Yeah, they definitely had a good rapport. Yeah. Yeah. And afterwards, she is blissfully happy. She even tells her dad she's in love with a Richie. (laughs) And (laughs) she's nervous that he and his friends won't ever truly accept her because she's not one of them and that her friends won't accept him. There's this class divide. And her dad is like, if you love someone, 
it's worth it. You know, you just got to take the heat. At this point, we're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back with the rest of Pretty in Pink. Can you keep up? I like I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quinn's items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI. And we are back. And the next day, Andy goes to Trax, the record store, <laughs> and Iona's apartment to fill Iona in on all the details of her date including the fact that she's going to the prom. And Iona is just very nostalgic for her own prom. She's like asking Andy all about the kiss, whether Blaine has strong lips. They conclude (laughs) that he does. 
because Andy felt the kiss everywhere. Mm. That's because his lips are strong and not because (laughs) of chemistry. Iona pulls out her gorgeous 60s prom dress and reminisces about her own prom where she had a date who had a wife and two kids. Um, Iona's had a rough romantic history. (laughs) Also, sorry, quick thing. Did anyone notice like how she did not look 20 years older? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like well, she's the way that I, yeah, yeah, I think she's supposed to be. She said fifteen years. Okay, but older. still, like she didn't look that much older. I thought the way she, that yeah. I actually interpreted that was that like it's actually been almost twenty years since my prom, and I'm obviously still so young. Like <laughs> to be twenty years older well, than going to prom, you're just in the, your mid thirties. Well, that's the funny yeah. thing. I was like, Iona is supposed to be younger than all of us. Like she, I think she's supposed to be in her very early thirties. Yeah, but she's also Which like just portrayed so as this old maid, but she doesn't look like that at all. I yeah. know she's like this seventeen-year-old's my child. I'm like Iona. Yeah. You're not, you're not that old. You're 32. Get over like. yourself. <laughs> I might feel that way if I was hanging out with a 17-year-old, though. That's, That's true. Thing. That's honestly don't. true. Yeah. Like, you're just a baby. Like, yeah. I, I have peers with with 17-year-old kids at this point in my life. Like, it's definitely realistic. But I think the way that professional women like us think of age is very different from the way someone in, like, working-class Chacago might have felt. True. About being in, in their mid thirties in nineteen eighty six, yeah. Good point. I know. Everyone I thought was like, that was poor interesting. Iona. Yeah. Also, Iona in this scene has one of her best costume changes, where she goes from like a white wig, full like cat eye eye makeup, and then immediately changes into her own prom dress and has like a gorgeous beehive. I love that they're just constantly doing unrealistic costume changes on her, and it's so fantastic. She's, like, taking on new personas constantly. She's she's shape-shifting. I, I love this scene where Iona is basically saying to her what I remember my own parents saying to me when I was struggling with whether I should try to fit in more in middle school, which is, like, I don't spend my life worried about being worried about fitting in. But if you want to, because you're in high school and it's tough, you should. Like, maybe it'll actually be sort of fun. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world to to get interested in what other people are interested in and enjoy those parts of your high school experience. That's okay, too. You don't have to be, like, such a rebel all the time to be yourself. Right. You don't have to rail against things to your own destruction. Yeah. And so she offers Andy her dress, her beautiful 60s dress, and advises Andy to be kind to Ducky because he's nursing some fairly serious wounds. I was like, I don't know. I think maybe someone needs to be less kind to Ducky. He's being coddled too much. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, Blaine is getting a lecture from Steph about how uncool it was of him to foist Andy on the party Blaine is like, you guys were nasty. You're an asshole. But Steph is like, no, this is this is your issue. You've got a hard on for trash. Don't take care of it around us. Steph is just repellent. Yeah, you, uh, you, they're really testing like how much how much shit can we see Steph say and still believe that Blaine is fundamentally a good guy and his best friend. They're really testing us. And Blaine asks Steph if money is all that matters to him. And Steph is like, 
whatever. Like, it's pointless for you to get involved with Andy. Your parents won't approve. And also, if you want your little piece of low-grade ass, you won't have any friends. So Blaine is like, oh, uh, okay. Like, I thought I had all this social power because I was rich, but apparently it's actually not as powerful as I thought. I Yeah, have to, it's, like, it's actually really tenuous. Like, I can suffer by way of my choices. I can be kicked out of the group if I don't follow the social rules of, of the class that I'm in. And I think that up to this point, this is, like, not something that he has ever experienced. And so he's clearly startled by this, but also forging ahead. He and also, Andy go out again. Molly Ringwald. Like, how can you yeah. say no? I mean, it's Molly Ringwald. So he and Andy go out again. They sit on bales of hay. I think they're at, like, the stables, the stables? at his cl- family's club or something of yeah. that nature after hours. And so, so they're <laughs> having a very private date, discussing the frustrations of class warfare. And Blaine admits that his parents see marriage as a corporate merger and Andy kisses him all over, and they're like, let's just tell everyone to go to hell. This is worth it. And Andy says, if somebody doesn't believe in me, I can't believe in them. This is important. (laughs) (laughs) That comes back. The next day, Andy ventures out to look for a prom dress at a fancy store where all of the dresses are like, she looks at the tag on one, and it's like $600. And that's in 80s yeah, dollars. What would that I'm like, yeah. what would that be today? I'm going to look it up. Yeah, I'm, like, yeah, I'm Googling it. I want to know. Oh, $1,652.39. Oh, my God. That's crazy. <laughs> that's wild. Okay, that, that dress, I'm sorry. That was the top of was... my wedding dress budget in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of money for a prom dress. That's... <laughs> Wow. I feel like when I was in high school, admittedly not in Chicago, if someone had a had a prom dress that was over $300, and that, that, that was in 2006, we were all like, oh my God, she got such an expensive dress. It was $400, you guys. Because we were buying like Jessica McClintock's and maybe if you were fancy, you went to like BCBG. Like yeah. it was not yeah. $1,700. I think mine was like $50 on sale at like Kohl's. <laughs> I actually remember... My my prom dress was it was nineteen ninety five was three hundred and fifty dollars and it was Betsy Johnson and I now that I've seen reseen this movie it was definitely oh. inspired by this it was pink and floral and it was oh very my God. like eighties nineties I had a great Betsy Johnson dress um, for one of my homecomings but I did yeah. do a classic hot pink Jessica McClintock strapless gown in, <laughs> at, for my two thousand five prom. Well, I, like Andy, was being raised by a single father at the time of prom. And I think his attitude towards prom dresses was sort of similar to Andy's father's, which is like, (laughs) you have a dress. It's a dress. You can wear it to prom. (laughs) Dads. They don't get it. They don't get it. (laughs) Um, They try. Uh, So (laughs) she leaves empty-handed. Over the weekend, she repeatedly calls Blaine and leaves messages with his mother, but she doesn't get a call back, and she's starting to question his commitment to this whole thing. But she doesn't give up hope, and her dad does go above and beyond. He brings her home a prom dress in pink floral print that reminds him of her mom, who always wore pink. And she's like, Thanks, Dad. I can I can work with this and transform it into something 
really great. Because we should say Andy has a side hobby, a little a little side hustle of um, design. Yeah, and Andy makes. She's like a, a little mini. Andy makes her own clothes. She makes her yeah, own clothes. The clothes that that the popular girls mock. Most of them she has made herself. And her dad lies to her. He says he got the money to pay for the dress from his new job which he has told her that he finally landed. And she knows that he doesn't have a job. So she confronts him about this and they get into a huge fight and basically scream at each other. He's like, oh, you know everything now, don't you? I'm just an ignorant son of a bitch who never gave you anything. I'm like, yeah, it kind of seems like you never gave her any. Like she literally (laughs) like makes him breakfast (laughs) so that he cannot go to work every day before she goes to school. Yeah, it's clear that her dad, played by Harry Dean Stanton, is is just, like, in full depression mode for, like, and has been for years. And she finally screams at him that he needs to just forget her mom. He's like, what? She's like, why can't you just realize that she's gone and she's not going to come back? Why can't you accept it? She's like, you can't live every day in the past. Like, I know that I'm trying to just keep moving forward. I need you to do that, too. Mm -hmm. And... That was an emotional scene. Uh, it's very emotional. Yeah, it's it's very emotional. And it is, the father-daughter relationship is so just like sort of present in the background of the mm-hmm. whole movie. Um, and it feels like important that she yells back at him. Yeah. Because she's sort of going along with his fiction the whole movie, even though she knows he's like bullshitting her, um, pushing him gently. And it feels like what he needs is to hear his daughter like talk back at him like an adult and be like no I I don't have to tolerate this bullshit in our relationship and it finally breaks through to him he cries he's like I you're right I'm I'm gonna get my life together he says since when our daughter is supposed to know more than fathers it seems like this whole movie happens <laughs> since she was very young uh on Monday at school I want to hear you say it. A month ago, I asked somebody else and I forgot. You're a liar! You're a filthy fucking no-go liar! You didn't have the guts to tell me the truth! Just say it! I'm not lying. Tell me! What? Tell me! What do you want to hear? Just tell me! What? You're ashamed to be seen with me. No, I am not. You're ashamed to go out with me. You're afraid. You're terrified that your goddamn rich friends won't approve! Just say it! Just tell me the truth! You don't understand that it has nothing at all to do with you. So he has uninvited her from prom. In the because most he's cowardly a coward. way. Yeah, a total coward. I'm so pissed at him. Who forgets that they so invite pissed. someone to prom? It's just the worst lie. <laughs> it's like the worst lie ever. <laughs> but I actually love this scene. This scene feels like so emotionally important to the arc of the movie. Like you just feel. Like, all of a sudden, Andy is, like, expressing her anger to all the men who are just terrible and just, like, taking advantage of her. She's like, no, I will scream at my father. I will scream at Blaine. Like, you're all a bunch of losers. Just say what you mean. And and own it. Like, she she's like, I love that she confronts him. And I recognize that feeling of, like, you know someone's going to reject you, but you're like, no, 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 no. 
I'm going to make you do it to my face. I'm not going to let you just like slink off and IRL ghost me. Yeah. Before they had ghosting. You will tell me to my face that you're uninviting me to the prom. Yeah. And there's something about the contrast between how he gets it from his rich friends and how he gets it from her that like the way that she expresses her displeasure is so direct and like it's kind of uh force i mean it's more forceful it's louder it's Mm -hmm. more it's it's more intense she like shoves him (laughs) but um but it's honest and it's fair like it's a fair criticism it's it's not weaselly or uh or bigoted or passive aggressive like she's just really being straightforward with him it's just overly aggressive (laughs) i also love that both of both ducky and steph are like happen to be in the hall nearby and hear the whole thing. Yeah. And then they <laughs> like get in a fight. It's such an 80s thing. <laughs> right. Of course. Oh, yeah. The fight in the hall. I've ne- you never wanted somebody to be tackled so badly as that moment. Am I right? Yeah. When you're like, we're, we're, like, I'm not a fighter. I hate fights. But like mo- those moments are like, fucking get them. <laughs> well, also, that's why, like, that's why movies are great. Because you're like, I do I condone violence? No, but this is a movie, so <laughs> it's okay. If he wants to deck stuff, I'm we all want to deck stuff. Yeah, yeah. I still want to deck stuff. <laughs> Same. But what I said, I wonder. I was thinking, like, wondering if he ever still gets that, like James Bader, like out in the world, people being like, "Oh, like you're such a dick." Every time I see him, he's Probably. playing a character who is this kind of character. He's so identified <laughs> with that kind of character now. And so I have yeah. to imagine he's not always given the the friendliest reception. Mm-hmm. I also like, I mean, we see the way that Ducky receives a lot of physical violence because he's so um, provocative in the way he talks to people and he's always starting shit that is often met with like being tackled or being punched or being slapped And so that is sort of this moment of reversal where he's like, I'm going to be the one to actually like try to deck someone right now because they're being a, a, they're they're mouthing off, like they're being a little bitch right now. And meanwhile, Andy goes to see Iona, who has made herself over in a whole new way. She's now in a big shouldered blazer, pearls, feathered hair. She's a woman in her 30s in 1986 <laughs> <I> now. <laughs> she has a yuppie boyfriend now. And so she has to look the part. And she's like, oh, I look like a mom. And Andy's like, in a good way. There's nothing wrong with looking like a mom. And she tells Andy that her boyfriend has a job. He's heterosexual. He's so nice. She's ready to pick out a china pattern. She's really happy. I love that uh, the the bar was just really low for straight women, even in 1986. It was like employed and heterosexual and nice. She had had this horrible boyfriend who fit in more with her background and lifestyle, but who treated her like garbage and was just a drain on her that she's been complaining about the whole movie. And now she's like, I found a man who won't be a drain on me because he has money and basic manners. So time to... <laughs> become a whole new person. He does seem very nice. And he is also wearing a beige blazer. Nothing wrong with beige. So we know he's a yuppie. 
Andy breaks down. She tells Iona that Blaine backed out of prom and she asks Iona for the dress that she offered. So Iona gives it to her. She doesn't explicitly ask Iona if it's okay to cut up the dress. I did notice that. <laughs> Made note of that also. Yeah. I was like, mm, you maybe should have asked, yeah. but this is how okay. I gave her the benefit of the doubt that they that she asked her off <laughs> off scene, like off stage. So yeah, that, yeah. You're like, like, that happened. For sure. I'm sure that Before happened. the most epic sewing montage, get, getting ready for the prom montage yes. ever. Yes. Oh my right? God. This montage. Andy heads home. She takes her two pink dresses now that match. There's only one shade of pink in this movie. And she sketches a new silhouette, triangle-based silhouette. And she starts cutting up the gowns and piecing them together. We see her, she's ripping seams. She's scissoring through the skirts. She's holding the dresses up to her in different ways. She's like, this bow, does it go on my head or does it go around my neck? Some would vote for neither, but Andy has her own vision. (laughs) And she gets all dolled up for prom, puts on her new dress, and tells her dad she's going alone. And she says, I just want to let them know they didn't break me. Oh, such a good line. Such a good line. Sorry, I spoiled it Uh, earlier. It just really stuck out for me. No, it's so good. And she is truly so herself in this moment. Like, this is not a person who's trying to yeah. blend. At, Which is such a, that's such a good message. That message, I think, is really important. Yeah. And I, I loved it yes. partly because I've been sort of baffled the whole movie by the idea that she couldn't go to prom unless someone like Blaine asked her. Like, it's the school prom. Mm-hmm. Like, can't you just go? Or you go with your friends? <laughs> Go with Ducky, go with Jen. Like, it's, I was never asked by a popular boy to prom, and I still went to prom. And there's this way that prom, like, just stands in for this social acceptance. And then it turns into an opportunity for her to instead say, I don't need social acceptance because I believe in myself. Yeah, she gets to assert space on her own terms. At prom, Steph is trying to get Benny to leave prom after like 15 minutes to bang in a $300 a night hotel suite. And again, this is a moment where I'm like, what is money in the 80s? Where he's like, it's $300 a night. It's hardly going to be a palace. And I'm like, I feel like it would be a really nice suite. (laughs) That's an $826 a night suite. That's like a pretty expensive hotel room. How much are these people spending on hotel suites in the 80s? Also, prom was free. Like, I know my prom, like, you had to pay to go. Yeah, we had prom tickets. Didn't you? Yeah, we had to buy a ticket. Yeah. So I guess in this, in Illinois in the 80s, you just went. Yeah, I... Yeah. Yeah, because you have to save your money for the hotel suite. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and to eat at Olive Garden beforehand, right? Am I right? <laughs> and Andy arrives alone. Blaine has been sitting, looking sad and alone at his table inside, But Ducky is waiting for Andy at the entrance in a tuxedo with a bolo tie. Not my favorite look, but I'm a conformist. He also is still wearing his duck shoes. He's always going to be a duck man. Because he's still Ducky. Are those shoes called duck shoes? Is that what they're called? That is what he calls them. (laughs) He seems to be referring to. That's what he calls them. What are are the shoes? I think they was actually... I, I don't know... You're Googling it? I'm like, what do you... Because they're they're obviously not like duck No, they're definitely boots. not duck boots. What we would... They're like just pointy... I think they actually might... Those shoes actually might be called 
duckies. Like white, they're not just called like, hold on. But are they, they, what are men's pointy shoes? (laughs) Wait, I'm finding winkle Winkle pickers, pickers. which is, which is a weirder name than duckies. I don't know if the shoes are supposed to be duck shoes or if they're just to him, they, they are identified with him as ducky. Oh, no, I think you're right. They are fluvogs. They're called ducky. Oh. Pointed dress shoes with cutouts. Or duckies. Okay. Unless the fluvog took it from ducky. What yeah. came first? The shoe or the ducky? I don't know. The ducky I'm pretty sure that those are named after ducky. Oh, yeah. The kind of shoe you'd you'd wear to take your pretty and pink BFF to prom ducky is an updated I think this is pattern. the problem. Anything that we find now is going to have come from the last 30 years. Named when, after ducky. Mm. But I think that the, the the this moment is Ducky saying, like, these are my signature shoes. And right. I'm still going to be me, even in my prom tuxedo. Yes. Okay. And now they are Ducky that shoes because of the... Ducky, probably. Yeah. And so they make up and they head in together. Blaine sees Andy across prom. Steph also sees Andy. He starts giving Blaine shit again about Andy and how much she sucks. And Blaine cuts him off. And he's like, you buy everything, Steph. You couldn't buy her, though. That's what's killing you, isn't it? That's it, Steph. She thinks you're shit. And deep down, you know she's right. <sighs> That's best line. Best I line. love it. Great line. And Andrew McCarthy just delivers it so quietly and it makes it so much more devastating yes. and there's nothing that evil james spader can say back no he just that. lets it sink in and he feels it he just has a moment with yeah. his own douchebagness exactly yeah. mm-hmm. you can see that that blaine that has had the bad taste to be friends with stuff for so long but that he's just kind of like not not a defiant guy he just goes along with things he's reserved and so this moment where he can just quietly be like no, you suck, is like a huge moment of rebellion for him. Mm-hmm. So he does the right thing. Yes. And he goes up yes. to Andy. He shakes hands with Ducky. He tells her that he always believed in her. He just didn't believe in him. And then he says, I love you. Always. He leaves. And then Ducky sends her after Blaine. I love him. He's like, he came here alone. And he's like, you're right. He's not like the others. If you don't go to him now, I'm never going to take you to another prom ever again. This is an incredibly romantic moment, and you're (laughs) ruining it for me. It was so sweet. This is like Ducky showing up as a good friend. It's so cute. Made me cry. I'm like crying just thinking about it again. It's adorable. (laughs) It's an incredibly romantic moment, and you're ruining it for me. Like, John, you're like, this is the piece of Ducky that's great, and that John Cryer is great at performing. A wealthy-looking blonde makes eyes at Ducky. This is Duckette, (laughs) played by Christy Swanson. (laughs) She is credited as Duckette. Yeah, Christy Swanson, who went on to be Buffy in the movie. Andy finds Blaine in the parking lot, and they kiss. Curtains. (sighs) That's the end of the movie. It's it's so sweet. I love it. I love this ending. And I'm so excited to talk about how I'm so grateful that they changed the ending so that we got this perfect ending. It was a perfect because, ending. Because, wow. And I have to yeah. tell you, because I said at the beginning, I couldn't remember Ugh. what happened. When, when Ducky showed up and, like, brought her in, I was like, does she end up with Ducky? Like, <laughs> there is actually, there was, a, there was kind of a part of me that wanted that. 
just because like he fought, you know, he didn't, he ghosted her so badly and like he didn't deserve her, you know, but then when he apologized and was willing to like take his losses and, you know, let Ducky have her, then, then I was like, no, it can't be the 80s rom-com if she doesn't get together with him. But I couldn't remember. Yeah, it is one of those so rare fun. rom-coms where it is sort of unclear who she's going to end up with because they both yeah. are so awful to her. And they're both sort of plausible partners for her in in a structural sense as her, like, ignored best friend who's in love with her and as, like, the the popular Prince Charming. And... As we've mentioned, it was originally supposed to be Ducky who ended up with her. That's what John Hughes wanted. And they filmed it that way. The whole movie, the whole movie was built around Andy getting together with Ducky. Uh, They filmed it that way, as Claire said. And when they tested it with audiences, according to the director, people literally booed. during the screening because they hated it so much. They just, like, did not respond and well And they hated that Blaine became such a villain because he's not redeemed in that ending at all. He just kind of drops Andy. Yeah, in, in the original ending, which has been lost, they literally cannot, even the studio cannot <laughs> find this ending, which is kind of crazy. So no one's seen it um, since then. Uh, but... Blaine shows up with another date and, like, ignores Andy. (laughs) He's just, like, a douchebag to the end. And Ducky and Andy get together. So they panicked and went to the studio and were like, I think we need to reshoot it with a new ending. And the studio approved it. And they got everyone back to film. Unfortunately, Andrew McCarthy had shaved his head for his next role. So he's wearing, like, a really kind of bad hairpiece, which honestly I never noticed until I read that he was wearing a hairpiece in that final scene, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, he mentioned something about like if they'd known that people were going to be talking about this movie for so so many years and that it would become truly like a cult classic, which I think is why I'm here today, yeah. by the way, just to tie yes. in those themes, um, <laughs> that they probably should have spent a little bit more money on a wig. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I actually I just thought it was part so of the grand funny. tradition in teen movies of the the guy showing up with, like, a nice hairdo for the big dance at the end <laughs> that's worse than his hair in the rest of the movie. Like in uh, Princess Diaries, when Michael Moskowitz shows up with his hair gelled back and it just he looks ruins terrible. everything. But no, it, it was literally everything. just a, a costuming <laughs> issue. Yeah. What I found super interesting in researching this changed ending, because I think that truly the movie would not be the cult classic that it is with if they had not made this change, it's that Molly Ringwald seemed to, from the beginning, be like, she and Ducky, like Andy and Ducky should not end up together. And all the men around her were like, but, but maybe she should. <laughs> I think she should. And like John Cryer to this day seems pretty offended <laughs> that Molly Ringwald thought that Andy shouldn't end up with Ducky. And apparently originally Molly Ringwald fought really hard for Robert Downey Jr. to play Ducky hmm. because she's like, my character's supposed to have chemistry with this person. Um, and... I would be offended by that if I were in in an interview. (laughs) 
<laughs> he is. He is offended. He's like, oh my God, she just thanks Mall. <laughs> like there's an interview where he's like, thanks a lot, Mall. But Molly Ringwald said in, a, in an interview a few years ago, I definitely felt like the audience was going to have that reaction. It just didn't make sense because of how the entire movie was structured and the way these characters were cast. I could maybe understand Andy choosing Ducky if Blaine had been portrayed as a vapid punk or if there had been no chemistry between me and Andrew. But it didn't make sense to have the entire movie be this Cinderella story, yet she doesn't get to end up with the guy she wants. It would have been unsatisfying. John was fantastic in that role, but to me, in my mind... Ducky was clearly a gay boy with a fierce crush on his friend. Yeah. And I found that so interesting because I, too, was struck in this rewatch that, like, to me, Ducky did feel coded as, like, a closeted gay boy. Yeah. That's sad. This is also something that John Cryer is offended by, but <laughs> Molly Ringwald has repeatedly she She said it first. Said. I think if Molly said it first, we can say it. Yeah. And she even says that, you know, the script was written for John Hughes, like by John Hughes for her. He took pieces of her life as inspiration. And she claims that the role of Ducky was based on one of her best friends who was closeted at the time and later came out. And so that's sort of always been her read on the character. And I found that so interesting. I think it's an accurate read. <laughs> yeah. I I too had that very strong reaction to seeing seeing Ducky <laughs> this time around. And I mean just the the drama, the performativity of the character and like the fashion sense, like it's the, and overcompensation. the overcompensation. Yeah. There are a lot of scenes where he's posturing masculinity in this very defensive way. Uh like when he gets tossed into the girls' bathroom by some bullies um, or when he's trying to like pick fights or approach women sexually it's very performative it's very much to project some sort of image that doesn't feel authentic to him and to me that's almost the Mm -hmm. most sympathetic reading of the character in that like he is suffering under the weight of these expectations of masculinity he's doing he's trying to both rail against them but also fit in and he is very attached to his best friend, who's, like, the only one that he feels really sees him. Like, it to me, it, like, makes so much sense to read it that way. Yeah. On the other hand, Molly Ringwald was into the idea of Andy and Blaine, and she was kind of the reason he was cast. Uh, Also, according to Andrew McCarthy, when he read for the role, no one else seemed interested in his audition. And he later learned that once the door closed behind him, Molly turned to John and said, that's the kind of guy I would fall for. And John said, that wimpy guy. (laughs) Like, imagine the movie we would have had if Molly Ringwald had not been involved in shaping these aspects. (laughs) That's kind of wild. I I also read that... um, Anthony Michael Hall was supposed mm-hmm. to play Ducky originally, but he didn't yes. want to like be typecast as like the nerdy, <laughs> desperate, dorky sidekick. Yeah, because I guess it was right after uh, uh, Sixteen Candles, Sixteen Candles, yeah. and also um, Breakfast Club. Yeah, Ducky is an interesting character from the perspective of all the men who are writing him. Like, you don't have to be a closeted gay boy to 
to feel oppressed by masculine expectations of masculinity and masculine norms. And so I think you have all these men who are shaping these characters who identify a lot with a character like Ducky. And even when you see a character like Ferris Bueller, there's an element of that, like a boy like me, but he's cool and he's like dramatic and theatrical and like people just love it. And he has the hottest girlfriend in school, you know? Um, But Ducky to me doesn't work as a romantic lead because he doesn't really interact with Andy. He's just doing everything at her all the time or next to her. It rarely feels like when they're talking, like he's listening to her. He's always performing a little stand-up routine. And that that's like a real type of guy. And it's very fun to watch. In real life, you might be like, oh, he needs a little more time to like mature and get comfortable actually having conversations with women <laughs> or whoever he need, he wants to ultimately date. But in the movie, whenever he's having a scene with Andy, he's doing much more like show peacocking. He's peacocking to her all the time. And you can see all yeah. these men who wrote this character being like, he's working so hard. He's like, he's tap dancing as fast as he can for her. And then you have Molly being like, well, why would she want that when she could have this nice, shy, shy quiet, sweet, handsome boy who does sort of listen to her and isn't constantly tap dancing yeah. as hard as he can? I think that's such a good point. And like, it is the power of having a 17-year-old girl kind of as an active hand in telling a story about a 17-year-old girl. She's like, I have a crush on Andrew. <laughs> so Andy would have a crush on Andrew. Mm-hmm. She she told Vogue, Andrew was cute with a sort of bookish quality. He didn't come off like some typical jock, which I didn't think Andy would ever be interested in. Mm. He seemed like the kind of guy that Andy would have been into because Andy wasn't that different from me. And I thought Andrew was really cute. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Isn't that like the most adorable 17-year-old girl thing of just like, that guy, he's cute. I'm into it. Thank you, Molly, for getting him And there is... There is a different kind of guy, I think, that, like, young straight girls are into that, like, older straight men wouldn't assume that they'd be into. Mm -hmm. Because that's not, like, the type of masculinity that they were always kind of battling with or trying to ape. But I think teen girls are kind of like, that quiet guy doesn't know how (laughs) handsome he is. He doesn't know he's beautiful. (laughs) That's what makes him beautiful. I will tell him. I'll be, the, exactly, I'll be the one exactly. to tell him. It's so intoxicating. Yeah. I think we should dig a little bit more into some of the 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 gender stuff going on in this movie, the relationships between Andy and the different men and boys in the movie, because they're, we've touched on this in the summary and, and so on. There's a lot going on. Because Andy is basically surrounded by men and boys who treat her badly most of the time or they just take from her instead of giving to her and it's not just like ducky it's not just blaine it's also like steph who is constantly trying to like get her to hook up with him and it's her father who she's sort of in a wife or even mother position to a lot of the time yeah there's even a scene where he tries to make her breakfast. Yeah, what is- and she's like, oh, no, Dad, I don't like eggs. Like, you should eat this egg. And tell me about your job that you got. I'm so proud of you. 
He doesn't know much about her. He knows a lot about his wife who left him. But he's like, what's your shoe size? What do you eat? Yeah. He's too depressed Like he's not to that. Learn. Yes. Sarah, what was your feeling kind of watching Andy navigate all of these dynamics with the various men that surrounded her? Um, I, was, I was actually quite uncomfortable with the relationship with the dad. I mean, in some ways it was sweet, you know, and they're very close. But I also was like, this is not healthy. <laughs> It's not a health. This is not a healthy situation for either of them. Yeah, no, no teenager should be taking care of her de- their dad. It's just not right. It's not what the focus should be. Um, and um, and also, you know, heartwarming in the moments that they had together. Um, <sighs> he does really love her, but it's in this sort of pathetic mm-hmm. way, where mm-hmm. he looks up to her and like depends on her, and so that gives a different cast to. The, the actual sweetness of how much he does love her. It's it's not just sweet. It's it's also depressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I also think it's interesting that her mom is not in the picture because this is such a common trope. We've seen in just this in this miniseries, this is the second teen rom-com we've watched with a mother who abandoned the family. And the third with an absent mother, because in Clueless, Cher's mother is dead. The only one we've watched Mm. in which Lead has a good relationship with her living mother is Easy A. (laughs) I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it's it's more, it falls probably into that black hole. It was like 2000. Yeah. 2010. It was 2010. Okay. Yeah. Height of the the cult (laughs) right then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were like, I, I was living yeah. my best life. They were occasionally making a rom com <laughs> yeah. and letting the mom be alive at that time, but not a lot of rom coms. What's up with that? Out. It's really weird, and it it is such a trope. I feel like I notice even when we've done our recaps of like bad Hallmark holiday movies and stuff, like all the moms are yeah. dead. And also a lot of Disney movies, because my kids are young, so I'm watching them. Like, almost all of yes. them, the parents die. And they're, like, abandoned. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, well, look at Bambi. Yeah. And The Lion King. And, like, it's actually quite upsetting. I think in, in a lot of uh, Disney movies, <laughs> rom-coms, there is this sense in which, like, well, how can we launch our hero or heroine onto the stage if they have a mother there to take care of them, like to protect them from all this. And Mm -hmm. what if we just got rid of them? And now they're basically an adult. Like even if they have a father, (laughs) their father is... Yeah, we're like more comfortable with men just being kind of absent parents. Yeah, I think especially with rom-coms, it's like their father is... the, The father's there, but he's not really emotionally there. It's hard for him to connect with his young daughter. It's hard for him to really give her the kind of mm-hmm. intimate counsel that we would expect more from a mother. And so we see, like, that she can have this complex, but ultimately pretty good relationship with her dad. But she doesn't have a mother who would maybe nurture her more or, like, compete with her in some way. There's this sense that's like, oh, there can only be one. So if her mom's still there, is she going to be some sort of competition for Andy as the primary focus. Yes. And instead she has this landscape of just basically all men. Like she has Iona as this somewhat maternal figure. And then she has her, fr- her mm-hmm. other friend, Jenna, who's barely in who's it. Who's barely in the movie. 
Um, And so mostly it's just about her navigating this sort of emotionally threatening, thankless world of men who don't know how to take care of her or how to have like mutual emotional relationships. And I think that just amps up the tension a little bit of like, how is she going to find someone to take care of her emotionally? Because none of these men know what the fuck they're doing. What kind of sets up this that she's just going to, that she'll figure it out on her own and she can do it on her own and she can sew her own prom dress and she's competent. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then she like earns mm-hmm. from them apologies and like improvements, right? Like by the end, she gets the father that she deserves who recognizes mm-hmm. that it's time to move on and to like put her mother's photograph away. And she gets the best friend she deserves who shows up for her to prom and supports her. Mm-hmm. And she gets the boyfriend she deserves who stands up to his slimy friend. But to do that, she had to first coddle all of them for years, like very <laughs> intensely coddle them and be the angel and be sweet and be understanding. And then one time get really mad at them. <laughs> <laughs> she gets it. She gets to have anger yeah. one time as a treat. This again sets up the template for a lot of people, yeah. right? Yeah. And also in terms of expectations of of getting the things that we think we deserve, because reality doesn't always play out that way. Yeah, right. You know? And it and it is interesting. It does definitely like um, play into certain yeah tropes mm. that that women kind of look to of like, okay, where is the line where I have to coddle the men around me and be really nice and sweet. And then like, okay, I guess if that doesn't work for a few years, then I can actually express my anger, but only at the appropriate time after I have taken care of the men around me for years first. Like, then I can be mad once. Yeah. And then like, the reality is sometimes you finally get mad and you still don't get what you deserve. <laughs> They're right. just like, bitch. <laughs> yeah, you're like, this, uh, I was promised that yelling one time Sufficient. would be very effective. And, and if I sewed my own prom dress, that I would get the guy. Yeah. I actually did yeah. very badly sew my own prom dress to my second prom with a lot of help from a very kind friend of a friend who actually knew how to sew <laughs> and uh, did not uh, lead to the most popular guy in school giving up his entire social uh, status to be with me. Well, that's just rude. <laughs> that's rude. You I deserved did. that, Claire. Did you Did you hear that when Molly Ringwald saw the dress that yes. she cried? Yes. This is one of my favorite things that she absolutely hated this dress. We have to talk about this dress. She said, I burst. Yeah. I burst into tears when I first saw it. And my teacher, I guess her like onset teacher at the time kept reprimanding me. She said I was being rude, but it was truly just a visceral reaction. I understand how iconic that dress is now, but I was so bummed out at the time. I kept all of the clothes except for that dress because I hated it so much. And of course, now (laughs) I wish I could frame it. So the dress is controversial. I mean, a lot of people it's, hate it's, it. If you look at the the style lines that all the other girls were wearing in terms of the 80s prom, like, halter and the boobs and then the flare. I don't know what that's called. I don't know what kind of yeah. cut that is. but it, Yeah, like the big, like, A-line skirt yeah. with the puffy sleeves. Yeah. Like, fit and flare, yeah. Then the puff is back, hence you can see. But I, I'm in the South, so this is this is like a mild <laughs> puff, just so you know. Like the puff the is 80s, back. Oh, no, they're totally back. Are they back? I have a lot of puff sleeves okay. now. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure if it's just where I was, but oh, like no. major, major puff. <laughs> but that's back. But, but the dress that she wore, as iconic as it is, like it's not, that wasn't the shape. Yeah. 
of the day. Right. So I could see why that would be. And by the way, like as an actor, there most of the time wardrobe is great, but every now and then you get something and you're like, I would that's awful. That's awful. So I totally I've never cried, I don't <laughs> think, at seeing my wardrobe, but there's been times where I've been like, I really don't want to wear that. And then like getting into fights. Her, honestly. Getting into fights with wardrobe or like Makeup artist. Well, you're like, I'm the one being yeah. filmed yeah. and then like distributed widely wearing this thing. Mm-hmm. And if I don't find it flattering, like like just being in the world, like going out for dinner mm-hmm. and feeling uncomfortable in what you're yeah. wearing is a very weird feeling. And I would imagine trying to like do a job where you're embodying confidence, but feeling like shit mm-hmm. in a costume would yeah. be like very hard. 100%. It's interesting because I feel like it is playing with certain 80s silhouettes, but so- to the point that when I was younger, I thought that we all just thought it was ugly now because it was so 80s. But of course, it yeah. is totally different from what the the popular girls would be wearing to a dance in the 80s. But it has it does have the puff sleeves, but they're they're dropped, you know, and her shoulders are bare, and she has like the high collared neck, and then it's sort of almost an inverted triangle silhouette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zach. And I'm kind of into it now, honestly. I think I used to think it was definitively ugly. And now I'm like, honestly, she looks great. I like the high neck. And the point is, yeah, the point is is that she did her own yeah. thing. Right? And, and, right. and she owned it to the end and she didn't conform and she didn't look like all the other girls. Yeah. Exactly. It guy. wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have worked if she was conforming. Mm-hmm. And that's like another major theme theme mm-hmm. and tension of in this movie is like conformity versus originality mm-hmm. and it feels like like Andy Ducky Iona I think we're supposed to think about all of them as originals like in their aesthetics in their attitude mm-hmm. and yet we also see both Andy and Iona kind of playing with what would it be like to conform a little more what like what comfort might exist in in being accepted and like trying to be accepted. And there is this great, this great tension that feels so true to the high school experience in that. Yeah. I think that it in a lesser teen movie, and we've seen many of them by now, she would show up to prom and impress everyone with how she actually is just as hot as all of them when she puts mm-hmm. on a dress that's just like all of theirs. She's like, and I took off, off my I took, glasses. Yeah, I took off glasses, exactly. <laughs> I took off my glasses. I put on my my little, you know, spaghetti strap dress. And here I am at prom and she's all that. And you can't believe how hot I am. But that's not where Andy arrives at the end of the movie. She arrives at like, I would like to be more accepted. I would like to have some of the things that I've been told are not for me, but not at the expense of having to be a cookie cutter, of having to be exactly mm-hmm. like everyone else. I sh- I should get to be accepted and be- have my own space while still being myself fundamentally. And duck Ducky too with his shoes, the famous shoes. It's like mm-hmm. I can wear tux. I can come to prom, but I'm still going to be me. Yeah, that that question of conformity versus originality is obviously very, very important for high schoolers. I don't know what it's like to be in high school now, mm-hmm. but certainly when I was in high school, it was the same, except it was like, instead of beige blazers and like taffeta dresses, it was like cropped, tiny layered polo shirts and like low-rise <laughs> jeans. <laughs> and 
you're always navigating that question of like, how much am I willing to like wear clothes that I hate? Go, you know, go out and get a a second after school job so that I can afford to shop at Abercrombie and get clothes that I hate so that I can fit in. And how much do I just embrace myself and hope that I can still find some level of acceptance day to day. And I also appreciate that this movie like shows us that also the the outsider group has their own like social mores and their own ways mm-hmm. of reinforcing the the with the in-group dynamics and like the happy ending requires Andy to sort of stand outside of either of those things and truly be herself. It's great. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah, what were you going to say? Oh, just back to what you were saying about the about conforming. Like, you just brought back some memories of, like, that. I mean, that was 100% a struggle. Like, str- she was trying to be like, okay, I either have to go, like, get a perm, because keep in mind, I'm 10 years older, yeah. right? So get a perm and get some Esprit or Benetton. Those were, like, the those are the preppy. Ooh, yeah. yes. And then, or, but what I ended up doing was becoming a theater nerd, but I still had to, like, conform to that. I mean, it's not like conforming, but it's, like, there's things you had to do to be part of that, Mm-hmm. Whether you yeah. know what I mean, like do mushrooms and like wear tie dye and like a those thick. I don't know if you've ever had the couchin sweaters, a Canadian thing. I think it's couchin, which is from a First Nations band, but like these thick yeah. um, sweaters with like I wore like yin. I was a hippie, so a hippie theater nerd with like yin yang <laughs> tie dye and like black and white kind of punk with Doc Martens and like purple laces. Like I, I was, Ooh, I had a legit. Doc I had a vibe, and it was I didn't I didn't make it up. Like it was. You know, it, it was conform- so you still had to do things to fit into wherever you were. It wasn't, you know, yeah. jock. Right. Popular. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, what makes John Hughes so good, such a good observer of teen life, is that there are these just constants, no matter what era you grow up in, where like you are navigating what it means to fit in, what it means to move between social groups and like, what your outward aesthetics signal to the rest of this like micro society in your high school about you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is, yeah, it's just something that all of us dealt with, even if like the markers changed. I just feel like there can be this assumption from outside, like once you're really removed from that context, or maybe if you've only ever been on the popular side of it, that like, well, everyone just wants to be the popular kids. But it is much more Mm -hmm. complicated because if you start becoming more proximate to that, then you're exposing your friends and your social group to what Andy experiences when she goes to that party. Like, they're not going to trust you as much if you're starting to mix in a circle that is hostile to them. And so that's why that is, those boundaries become so important and all that signaling. It's also these more out groups trying to, like, protect themselves from being drawn into, like, this space where they're going to be rejected by their friend who's getting more popular or their popular friend is going to bring them into contact with a group that really looks down on them. And so it's really important to all of these groups to have these boundaries around them that are signaled by these things like what clothes you wear. And and yet it's really unforgiving if you don't feel like you fit comfortably into any of those spaces. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about the 80s class Mm, dynamics mm, because like, oh man, you can feel the Reagan 80s in in this movie. (laughs) 
I mean, Pretty in Pink came out one year before Wall Street and the whole greed is good speech. Like, this is just, this is a movie grappling with yuppies. <laughs> yeah, yuppies are the <laughs> the secret topic of this movie. <laughs> which also, quick sidebar, the, the, the line that Ducky says, which is ad-libbed apparently when he talks about Blaine, says Blaine... He has a name, Blaine. Blaine sounds like a kitchen appliance. <laughs> yeah, that's not a that's name. That's not a name. That's a major appliance. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Ad-libbed. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I mean, I will say for all the shit we've given Ducky as a character, the movie would not be what it is without Ducky. He has all the good mm. comic relief lines. But it, yeah, it's true. But it's signaled with all of the high schoolers, the popular rich high schoolers, in their, like, business wear, as we've discussed. They're all wearing blazers and suits all the time. They really are just, like, mini yuppies. Like, they're going off to their Wall Street jobs or they're going to, like, spend the weekend on a yacht with their, you know, other rich adult friends. (laughs) And so they really bring in that question of, like, class, like, just evoking the workplace through the fact that they're all wearing literally blazers all the time and talking about yuppies. And the fact that these kids, yeah, these kids, like, recognize that that's the path they have to go down. They're like, my parents expect me to marry well. This is about a merging of resources. I am meant to replicate the social class that I've been raised in. And yeah, like, that's that's my life. My life has been set out by way of the fact that I was born with money. I'm going to drive a BMW. I'm going to wear a beige blazer. And I'm not going to cavort with girls who make their own clothes from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. I, I feel like there is a very um, pro-wealth sentiment broadly. Like, there's no countercultural... Um, element to the mainstream high school scene like everyone who is popular and cool is like greed is good i'm gonna keep climbing the financial ladder until i die and i'm gonna look good doing it and that is just feels so 80s to me as someone who was born in 1988 um i feel like i know all about that And even Andy is, like, taken in by it to an extent, right? She's like, I love those houses. Mm -hmm. Look how beautiful and giant and white they are. Like, it's her fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantasy, and she is as enchanted with it as the yuppies are. Yeah. But, I mean, is it even being taken in by it? It is just easier to have money, you know? Like, she... She's identified something real. And she Mm -hmm. identifies with her working-class background. Like, she is suspicious of the rich people that she goes to school with. But she's like, I would like to live in a beautiful house. Who wouldn't want to live in a beautiful house? (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to just not have to be hounding my father to go to the meet with the counselor and get a job every single day. Like, fair enough. And, And I also, like, this is at a time when, like, that wealth inequality is only increasing and increasing. Um, And so I feel like there probably was this like rising awareness of you're born into like one lifestyle or another and it's getting harder and harder to kind of cross over. And even in high school, you know, these people are aware of that. Yeah. I I had forgotten how much of the movie really just feels like it's mostly about class. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Yeah. So overtly. Same. That wasn't what I remembered (laughs) about the movie. Yeah. 
Which is so great of John Hughes to like to do that and have it not be not hit you over the head. But that being said, like we did, I mean, I watched it much younger, just like in your episode about Dirty Dancing. Yeah. Like if I watched it now, I probably would catch a lot more references of things I never would have understood. Oh yeah, all that context kind of like washes over you mm-hmm. when you are a child yeah. watching this movie, which is why it's great that it works on on multiple. Levels yes. in that it's not way. Not just the great music in both the films, but the soundtrack Ugh. was so good. Yeah. Great soundtrack. Yeah. And apparently, John Hughes was very like driven yes. by songs. Like he would hear a song and he would write like a whole script around. And you can tell that, that. song, or he. You can tell. Yeah. It's not. It's not just like oh, let's throw in this song here now. It's like the the song is more woven to the fabric of the feeling of the scene. And now I know why. And it feels like there's a reason that. Andy works at a record yeah. store. Like music is essential to these to the life of these characters. They she's hanging out at a club where musicians are always performing. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And and of that that alternative group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it plays into the whole class divide too that like these kids who don't have anything, they can have art and they can have their creativity and they can identify really yes. strongly with artists who are hip or who are political and for people who are wealthy they mostly seem to identify with consuming things like they they have nice cars they have nice clothes like they build their identities around consumption and for Andy and her friends it's around stuff like music and and what they can create yeah. And also fashion. But not consuming clothes, yeah, but like fashion is, creating them. Yeah. No, create creating clothes mm-hmm. and creating looks. Like you you see the way in which Andy and Ducky and their friends are dressed. And it's like layers of different blazers and vests and shirts and blouses mm-hmm. and little hats <laughs> and like just maximalist accessories. And all of the rich kids are basically just wearing the same outfit in a different neutral in every single scene. Like maybe Steph will be wearing a white suit with a blue shirt. And then in the next scene, he'll be wearing a light beige suit with a white shirt. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you don't get the variation. Whereas Andy and Iona are just like constantly experimenting. Like that's sort of the freedom in not having access to a ton of like the finest fashions is you get to play with it. Yeah. It made me want to dress up as her for Halloween. Right? Yeah. What's your favorite outfit? Oh, that's tough. I'd have to go back and watch. I think probably maybe the one that she was wearing when she goes shopping for the dress, like with the hat and the vest and the floral and the lace and like all the things. So cute. Mm -hmm. Apparently, um, costume designer Marilyn Vance actually sourced all of Andy's outfits from vintage shops in LA. So it really was like put together, yeah, with all real vintage clothes, which I absolutely love. Kind of makes me want to throw out everything and and start again and just do that. Yeah. I know. You're like, what have I done buying, like, so many one-off pieces from Zara or whatever? Yeah, it's It's weird to look back because, like, when I was in high school, I was doing a lot of thrifting and, like, definitely my clothes Mm -hmm. were never as uh, cool as the kids I knew who had more unlimited shopping budgets. But I look back and I'm like, yeah, that was better. And now I have money to buy myself stuff. And you can see how easy it is for to let that like kind of stunt your, your creative muscle. And 
what we see with like Andy and her friends is that they're limited in so many ways because they don't have the resources to build the kind of financially comfortable future that their their rich counterparts do. But their rich counterparts are sort of imaginatively stunted. And so when you have Mm -hmm. like a Blaine and an Andy, that's what they're kind of giving each other is like he's giving her this look into a world where there's so much potential for um, career and education and like stability. And she's giving him a look at a world where it's like, what if you don't just think the same thing that all of your rich friends think? What if you think for yourself? Right. What if you get to actually trust your own instincts and listen to your own original thoughts um, and find who you are? And you can tell... I think that's part of what makes Blaine an effective romantic lead is that there he is also suffering under the weight of the expectations of his social class. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been stunted yeah. by it. Before we let you go, Sarah, I did want to talk about, I feel like there's a lot of little cults <gasps> present mm. there. I feel like in this movie, like the cult of capitalism, I mean, rom-coms and romantic narratives are in a sense a little culty. Yeah. Too. Like, was there anything that stood out to you? Oh, God. I feel like I made a note of something. Let me like take a quick look. I feel like I did. I mean, just like I mentioned earlier, just the concept of what it means to have a cult classic. Mm-hmm. You know, what does, that e- what does that even mean? It's just like films become iconic. And that's like the good part of culty shit is when people are obsessed, but it's not, no one's being hurt. Right. Right. You're like a, a nice benign cult of all loving. Is there any this more benign yes, cult and taking a, a lot from it? Classic. I think it's the best kind of culty yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. I mean, some of the dynamics of the of the mean girls, you know, and the power dynamics, even within the class structure or the hierarchy of the school, um, bully and you know, uh, what's his face? Um, not Steph. playing the other guy. She, um, Steph, yeah. Steph. And to be totally honest, um, I was so excited to do a podcast where I wasn't talking about <laughs> cults because I it's just Yeah, that's fair. That's why we, we didn't no, want no. to make you talk about it no, too it's much. Totally, it's but, totally uh, fine. I just was like kept trying to turn that part of my brain <laughs> off. But I mean, I see I see dynamics that are culty or basically it's abuses of power everywhere. And um, you know, even with the the first scene of the car where he's trying to like get him get her to sleep with him, like super manipulative and then then she's a bitch like i don't know there there's just dynamics where i thought like that's kind of quintessential abuses of power not necessarily culty per se but yeah yeah was there something but yeah you, like yeah. those those dynamics when taken on like a large scale yeah. and yeah. Yeah. yeah and in a sense like high school is like full yeah. of little cults yeah. well and it's that it is that it, question between conformity and originality like mm-hmm. how much do you let yourself just try to be like everyone else and be dic- have your life dictated mm-hmm. by that versus resisting. And what high school bullying can do and high school social pressure can do is kind of like break you. You stop trusting your own inner voice. You start taking cues from someone else who you perceive as having more power and more say-so. And so that moment is mm-hmm. so important when she's like, I'm going to show them they didn't break me. Like they've been trying so yes. hard to to show her her place and and mm-hmm. to get her to like accept that about herself and she's like no yeah. i'm still no she's yeah. like fuck you that's i think is why i like that so much yeah that line yeah, yeah. and you know and yeah it, i feel like there is you don't have to like a, a, a an andy vibe to your story yeah Sarah. yeah and it's, i'm not sure like it's hard to not 
when you watch something and it's emotional, it's emotional because it resonates in some way. So like, yeah, they couldn't break me. I've said in many interviews, like, you know, they fucked with the wrong person. Um, <laughs> so maybe somewhere that's in the template too, to, to stand up and also to show women, like there's, there's, you know, fight or flight, but there's also freeze. And a lot of women freeze when they're confronted with somebody who's not treating them well or um, being abusive in some way. And they don't know how to, what to say. And the fact that she does stand up for herself multiple times is um, a good role model in that way. Yeah. Even though there's lots Absolutely. of things dated about the movie <laughs> that would never fly now. Well, that's... Like the smoking That's and all the that thing. Yeah. Is like there is this, you know, a lot of things in John Hughes movies, in, in any older mm-hmm. movie, like don't totally age well. Mm-hmm. And yet I think Pretty in Pink does actually mm-hmm. age. Except for the smoking. Fairly well. The smoking. There was an excessive amount of smoking. So much smoking. And the, and it, oh, yeah. Well, they're just all smoking. <laughs> yeah. They're always smoking. On that note, I have to go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So fun. And again, to have a little a little cult break and um, watch an awesome movie with my kiddo. Yeah. Can you tell the people where they can find oh, yeah. you, your podcast, your book, all, all, of, the all of your wonderful work? Oh, thank you. The access is part of my brain. Okay. So I'm on Instagram, <laughs> Sarah Edmondson, and a little bit culty is our podcast. You can listen wherever you get pod, whatever you get your podcast. And the same thing, a little bit culty on Instagram. And my book is called Scarred, The True Story of How I Escaped Nexium, The Cult That Bound My Life. And that's wherever you get books. And I narrated the Audible, which is kind of fun if you want to hear hear me read my wor- own words. And I'm doing a TEDx talk in Portland in a couple of weeks, which is kind of the best thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. Sarah, I just love, truly love all of your work and personally was um, very excited because we grew up at similar benignly culty summer camps right. that our sister camps, which is a very small so funny. group of people. And when we went on the same gap year program for a year after high and school, And we have some mutual friends too. Yes. So I Benign felt, I felt very um, connected to you. Yeah. Very connected to you yeah. from afar. So this is a real it. treat. And I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know until I was researching your pod that you had Jacqueline Trumbull yeah. on who we become, we actually met in real life. She came to Vancouver and we- oh. Yes. I did her pod. Jacqueline's a great friend of ours, Amanda Montel. Right. So we have, yeah. And Amanda Montel had Molly Ringwald. Friends. Didn't Molly Ringwald like endorse her book? Or my th- did she? I think so. Okay, oh, I, better, well, I have to double wow. check because I think That's so. Perfect full circle moment. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Time. Oh my gosh. So fun. So Sarah had to run, but before we go, we've got to rate this movie out of 10 pink sack prom dresses. Claire, what do you think? Oh. What a movie. I'm going to say, for me, it's like a 7.5. There's so much that I loved about this movie. There are also a lot of elements that did make me uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, But... Like (laughs) Like Ducky Ducky being one step away (laughs) from an incel. Exactly. I was like, wow, really strong incel best friend vibes. (laughs) But, you know, I think that whether through planning or fortuitous happenstance, I think that they all sort of resolve in the right way. And uh, by the end, I just, I feel amazing. So I love Andy. Andy's like an all-time teen rom-com heroine. I love Molly Ringwald. Andrew McCarthy is kind of, you know, 
just so sweet and cute cute. and like does exactly what he needs to do for me in this movie and ducky is a a mess but he's entertaining and (laughs) you know compared to a lot of john hughes movies relatively not problematic like not quite so many moments where i wanted to die exactly you're like thank god there's not like a bunch of sexual assault and overt racism in this one um or like not wildly overt (laughs) racism like in some of his other movies a little bit of cultural appropriation but um no yeah no character major characters that are just like racist caricatures uh like in 16 candles so that is a relief i do think it's one of it's the one of the molly ringwald trifecta that holds up the best um and this movie just did as we discussed provide so many great templates for other movies that were really, I think, important to to us in our growing up and and our awareness of what it means to be a young woman and have that experience taken seriously and actually examined. So even if it's done somewhat imperfectly, I do think that John Hughes deserves the credit for, like, telling those stories and demanding that they take up space. And I think that that ultimately paved the way for a lot of other movies that that we just wouldn't be the same without. So I'm I'm also between like a, I think a 7.5 or an 8. Yeah. Um, you know, I like to play, play loose <laughs> with these ratings and rate everything high because we just keep talking about movies that are yeah. really meaningful. When are we going to do a movie that's below so, five? I don't know. It's not going to be today. I don't know. <laughs> not today. <sighs> and on that note, that is it for this episode of Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks, of course, to our wonderful guest, Sarah Edmondson. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like our show, please remember to follow us, rate us five stars, and of course, leave an excellent review. And of course, spread the word about our show to all of your friends. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at claireandemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and TikTok at Love to See It Pod and Instagram at Claire and Emma Pod. And you can find our newsletter rich text on Substack at claireandemma.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Claire E. Fallon. And I'm at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back later this week with a bonus on the Netflix show, Jewish Matchmaking. And then next week with our next rom-com rewatch, Never Been Kissed. Stitcher. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.